continue uh, tonight looking at the, the book of Leviticus. We'll be uh, tonight in chapter 21. And uh, Leviticus chapter 21 uh, gives to us regulations for uh, the Old Testament priesthood. Now, verses 1 through 15 of the chapter describe uh, regulations for the priests chiefly in, in two main areas. One with respect to their mourning for and their care of the dead. And then secondly, with regard to their families, particularly in regard to the wife whom they were permitted to marry. Verses 1 through 9 deal with priests in general, then verses 10 through 15 are specifically in regard to the high priest. And then in verses 16 through 24, we see regulations in regard to the priests who are physically deformed. And so as we look at the chapter, we'll read first uh, verses 1 through 15, and we'll consider that, and then secondly, we'll look to uh, look at the verses 16 through 24, and, uh, and then at the end, we'll try to, try to bring things together and, uh, and see this ultimately pointing us to Christ. So uh, let's look to the first, uh, first 15 verses of Leviticus 21. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to the Lord their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy." They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire." The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Now, as we said, these verses contain instructions for the priests. In the economy of the Mosaic law, the priests occupied a unique 
and specific position. They represented God to the people, and they represented the people to God. In that sense, they were mediators in a way. Now, obviously, they're not the true and perfect mediator that our Lord Jesus Christ is, but nevertheless, they were the go-betweens under that economy between God and the people. Now, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, was speaking specifically of the office of high priest when the writer said this, He said, for every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And moreover, as the book of Hebrews goes on to make clear, the high priests of the Old Testament times were foreshadowing. However, imperfectly, nevertheless, really foreshadowing the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So given the importance of their position in offering the gifts and sacrifices to God and ministering in God's name to the people, and in all of those things serving as a type, as a shadow of Christ who was to come, then it follows that there are some specific requirements for them in regard to their care of and their mourning for their dead relatives and also for the women whom they were able to marry. Beginning in verse 1, we find that the priests were not permitted to defile themselves for the dead among their relatives. Now, to defile in this case means to touch the dead body or to be present in the, the same house or the same tent with it. Some have thought that even attending or assisting in the funeral or the burial of a dead person or partaking of a funeral meal would bring such defilement. Numbers chapter 19 makes it very clear that uncleanness would come upon an individual touching a corpse, Numbers 19.11, being in the same tent with a corpse, Numbers 19.14, or even touching a grave, Numbers 19.16. And so the regular priests as a whole are forbidden from doing this with the following exceptions that are found in verse 2, their nearest relatives, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, or verse 3, virgin sister. These, these were the exceptions. Now, the precise intent of verse 4 is a matter of some debate, whether it prohibits a priest from defiling himself in the case of his wife or whether it steps back, as it were, and gives a reason why he must not defile himself for any other uh, relative beyond those six which verses 2 and 3 enumerated, namely because he is a chief man among his people, because he is set apart for the public ministry of the priesthood and therefore must not defile himself. The English Standard Version in its rendering points more in this direction than the New American Standard Translation, which I read. Um, it point, or excuse me, it points more in the direction of a priest not defiling himself for his wife. So the ESV translates it as he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. King James takes it in the other direction and renders that portion of verse 4 by saying he shall not defile himself 
being a chief man among his people to, uh, to profane himself. The, uh, uh, the word, I believe, there is, is Baal, and so can mean kind of a, a lord or husband, and so, uh, so that's why King James translated it as a chief man among his people. Now, either way one would choose to go in regard to verse 4, the general point of these opening verses, chapter 21, is clear, with very few exceptions. Very few exceptions. The priests are not allowed to defile themselves for the dead. Stipulations from Numbers chapter 19 make it clear that the one who defiles himself by touching a dead body, being in the same tent or building with a corpse, or touching a grave, is unclean for seven days. If a priest were in that condition, unclean for seven days, that would render them unfit, unable to minister at the tabernacle. In that sense, then, their status as leaders of the people, functioning as mediator, uh, in their mediatory role, would be undermined, at least for a time. In verse 5, we find that the stipulations uh, given back in Leviticus 19, 27 and 28, are applied specifically to the priests. The text in Leviticus 19, 27, and 28 forbid the, the rounding off of the side growth of the, uh, the heads and harming the edges of the beard and cutting the body for the dead. Chapter 21, verse 5 applies that law, which was for all Israel, takes it and applies it specifically and directly to the priests. The people can't mourn for their dead that way, and neither can the priests. Why? The answer in regard to the priests is found in verse 6, that they shall be holy uh, to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. Now, obviously, we have to understand that phrase, the food of their God, is a, is a matter of speaking, a way of referring to the sacrifices and gifts that were offered. Certainly, the Lord stands in no need of anything. Psalm 50, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Or, as Paul said to the Athenians, Acts 17, 24 and 25, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The point of verse 6 is to say that the priest cannot defile himself for the dead, that he cannot mourn for the dead as the pagan nations did. The priests were to be holy to the Lord, they were to be dedicated to his service, and they were not to render themselves unfit to minister at the tabernacle because of such mourning for the dead. And likewise, these regulations would have been very, very countercultural, very counter to the common notions of the other religions of the ancient world, the religions of the other nations that surrounded Israel. One writer summed up the situation this way. He said, The animus neighbors of the Israelites seemed to have believed that on death the spirit of a person entered the supernatural world spiritual realm. The spirits of the dead were much more alive, more influential than ever after death. Their corpses were regarded as sacred, for they provided a physical bridge into the realm. 
This led to a common involvement of people in the cult of the dead. The Lord, however, totally banned the cult of the dead, together with all forms of spiritism in Israel. Death was not to be regarded as something sacred, part of the supernatural cosmic process, but as something unclean, a prime source of defilement. Direct contact with a corpse, therefore, contaminated a person. And so you can, you can see how, uh, how the rules here for the priests, specifically in regard to their interaction with the dead, would have been pushing back against this idea of seeking to somehow use the dead and their corpses as a bridge into the supernatural world. Again, this, this kind of stuff is completely off the table for the Lord's holy people. And then, beginning in verse 7, we see the categories of women whom a priest must not marry. Now, my sense is that the ESV and the King James Version do a better job of translating verse 7 than the New American Standard did. The English Standard and the King James Versions indicate that there are actually three categories of women, not two, whom a priest could not marry. Namely, a prostitute, a woman who was defiled, or a divorced woman. New American Standard uh, seems to lump two of those categories together, one who was defiled by harlotry, whereas I think, I think probably actually three, three categories are in mind, one who was defiled, one who was a prostitute, and uh, one who was a divorced woman. Such a marriage, and in marriage, a sexual union with such a woman would bring defilement upon the priest. Now, there may have been potentially an element of, of scandal to it, which would discredit the priest and also the Lord whom the priest served in the, in the eyes and estimation of the people, the priest being a husband to such a woman. But that is not explicitly stated in the text. The potential for scandal among people is, is nowhere mentioned here. The reason that is mentioned comes in verse 8, which contains a very similar idea to what we saw up in verse 6, namely that the priest is consecrated, the priest is holy, the priest is involved in the holy business of serving a holy God in the tabernacle. He must not bring defilement to himself by the person whom he marries. Now, allow me just to pause here because I realize verse 7 may be maybe a bit uncomfortable at first, at first glance. But we need to understand that verse 7 in itself is not moral law. Verse 7 in itself is ceremonial law pertaining particularly to the Old Testament priesthood. Verse 7 in itself is no law that a former prostitute may not marry. It's not a law that forbids a fornicator from getting married. Likewise, it is not a law that forbids all divorcees from getting married. Considering remarriage after a divorce is something that needs to be handled carefully and biblically and in consultation with the elders of one's church. The multitude of questions and situations can be difficult in some of those situations, and these things need to be carefully weighed and considered, not just by the parties themselves who are thinking about these things, but also by some outside parties who may be, off, may be able to offer some more impartial counsel as they render an estimation of the situation. But again, the law of verse 7 is not applicable to the entire nation as part of the moral law. Rather, this is part of the ceremonial law pertaining particularly to the office of the priest. And then verse 9 deals with the punishment that would come upon the daughter of a priest who is profaned by harlotry. She would be burned because she had profaned her father. She brought not only ill repute, but also contamination upon her father because of what she had done. And therefore, the penalty 
was severe. Now, the stipulations of verses 10 through 15 for the high priest are very similar to that of the, the priesthood in general, but they are more rigorous. The high priest is described here as the anointed priest. He's the one upon whom the anointing oil has been poured, whereas the oil had just been sprinkled on the, the other members of the priesthood. Uh, Whereas the rank and file priests could defile themselves for those six categories of family members, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, and virgin sister, the high priest could defile himself for none, as seen in verse 11. According to verse 12, he was not to leave the sanctuary. That is, he was not to leave it on account of the dead. He was to remain there ministering despite the death of his close family. And then verses 13 and 14 make the marriage requirements for the high priest even of a greater standard than those of the regular priest. His wife is explicitly required to be a virgin. The other priests seemingly could marry a widow. Not so for the high priest. He must only marry a virgin. And then the reason is given in verse 15, so that he will not profane his offspring among his people. Now there are various explanations for uh, what particularly might be going on there in regard to verse 15, whether it be questions of paternity, in other words, whether the child born to such a union was really the offspring of the high priest, whether it be that such a union itself would render the offspring as unfit for the office of high priest or something to that effect. One way or the other, the offspring of the high priest would be profaned if it were born of a woman who was not a virgin, and he took her to be his wife. So again, the, the priest was to be holy. His offspring were to be holy and not profane. And thus he was not to be profaned by his wife, and he was not to be profaned, uh, he was not to profane his offspring by means of his wife. He could be profaned by his daughter, even if she became a prostitute, and that must be dealt with again by severe punishment. And so we can see the the, the way in which the Lord was, was hedging his priests so that they would not be profaned, but that they would be holy to him. Now let's, let's look ahead down to verses uh, 16 through 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to, the sons, uh, excuse me, speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. Now, verses 16 through 24, if we can put it this way, are cognitively easy but emotionally hard. Right, we, can, we can understand the instructions of these verses 
pretty, pretty straightforwardly. No man with a defect shall approach the veil or the altar to offer the sacrifices, to offer the food of his God. And the particular defects intended are spelled out in verses 18 through 20. Okay, sure, we, we get it. There's a sense in which this is, this is cognitively easy, very, very straightforward. But it's emotionally hard, right? The men, descendants of Aaron, who potentially through no fault of their own, suffered one of these defects, was not allowed to minister at the altar. They were prohibited from serving the Lord as they otherwise would have been able to do. While someone might be able to think that some of these things are matters of practical expedience, and we could, we could see that, right? A blind man couldn't see where he was going to perform the sacrifice. A lame man wouldn't be able to walk to approach the veil, and so on. But some of these things are not in that kind of category at all, right? What about the man with a disfigured face? What about the man with a defect in his eye or with scabs? What about the man with crushed testicles? What, why do those things need to interfere with service which this man of the descendants of Aaron could have otherwise rendered? Well, again, as in the earlier material in the chapter, so also here there is an answer. It's in verse 23. So that he will not profane my sanctuaries. Now, what should we think about these, these regulations for the priests, right? We've, we've seen the, the first 15 verses in regard to the care and mourning for the dead, in regard to the marriages, and then now here in the second part of the chapter in regard to the, the restriction of the ministry of the priests. What should, we, what should we think about this? What should we do with these things? First and foremost, we need to realize that the priesthood and in particular, the high priests were types and shadows of the Christ, of the great high priest who was to come. And that great high priest was absolutely undefiled. Now, these high priests were to keep themselves from a relative undefilement, right? They certainly were unclean at some point. And certainly, we know they were sinners, but Christ is absolutely undefiled. He's not profaned by anything. And so we find in Hebrews 7.26 that it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then Hebrews 8.1, the main point of what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. These high priests of old were engaged in the holy things of God at the tabernacle. And most importantly, they were serving as a type of Christ. They were not to be profaned by the dead, not to be profaned by the wife whom they took, just as our Lord is not profaned by the wife whom he takes. And so Paul says, 2 Corinthians eleven two, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Indeed, we find Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 that Christ sanctifies his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The high priest was not to be defiled by his wife. And our Lord Jesus Christ is certainly not defiled by his bride. Not that, not that we're holy and upstanding in and of ourselves. Absolutely not. But nevertheless, we are cleansed by Christ to be his bride. 
And I don't think that it is too much to say that the marriage of the high priest, the marriage of the the great uh, high priest, typifies, uh, serves as a type of the Christ who is to come. High priest marriage serves as a type of the marriage of Christ. And while we're here, it is, I think, worth pointing out that the high priest is a type of Christ even in regard to his sex and gender. Our Lord Jesus Christ was born into the world as a male. The eternal Son of God became Son of Man. He was a man. Men and women are different. Christ was a man. He was typified in the Old Testament by men who served as high priests. J.I. Packer, if I can borrow his word, put it this way. He said, the New Testament presents him as the second man, the last Adam, our prophet, priest, and king, not prophetess, priestess, and queen. And he is all this precisely in his maleness. To minimize the maleness shows a degree of failure to grasp the space-time reality and redemptive significance of the Incarnation. And though the New Testament is certainly not explicit on this point, pastors and, and the fact that pastors and teachers in the church are not Old Testament priests, there may also be some sense in which this also lies behind the New Testament restriction that the pastoral office be limited to qualified men. To quote Packer again, he said, Since the Son of God was incarnate as a male... It will always be easier, other things being equal, to realize and remember that Christ is ministering in person if his human agent and representative is also male. C.S. Lewis was speaking uh, perhaps more popularly, but he put it this way, addressing the same point. He said, it is painful being a man to have to assert the privilege or the burden which Christianity lays upon my own sex. I am crushingly aware of how inadequate most of us are in our actual and historical individualities to fulfill the place prepared for us. But it is an old saying in the army that you salute the uniform and not the wearer. Only the one wearing a masculine uniform can provisionally, until the parousia, represent the Lord to his church. But there is more typology here than this. For now... The entire church, men and women alike, are priests. We have open access to God. The veil has been torn, and we as priests all may come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Peter says to the believers that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. And, as we find in Revelation 1.6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And therefore, inasmuch as we are all priests, we need to take a lesson from these priests of old. And one lesson that arises from the text is that we must avoid defilement. And by that, I'm in no way speaking of the ceremonial defilement of what is spoken here in the text, that of touching dead bodies or the absolute 
avoidance of the marriages that are described here, these ceremonial defilements were types and shadows of moral defilement in which we as Christians must avoid. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And our calling then as the holy people of God means not only the avoidance of evil, but actually the pursuit of what is good. And so Paul appeals to the holy status of the Colossians, Colossians 3.12 and following, when he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He starts with the people as, as being holy. And then appeals to them to not simply avoid the bad stuff, but to pursue the good stuff. To pursue compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving, loving. And so as members of this holy priesthood, all of us, let us keep ourselves from that which defiles and pursue those fruits of holiness which are described for us. And we should also notice how at the end of Leviticus 21, this the end of this chapter, which, as we said, is cognitively easy but emotionally hard, there's some applicability here for us as well. One thing that we should note is that those priests, though they were forbidden to approach and to offer the sacrifices, nevertheless, they were still able to eat from the sacrifices. Verse 22 specifies that the deformed priests could eat of both the holy things and the most holy things. They had access to it all. Though they couldn't offer at the altar, they were sharers in the altar. The Lord was still graciously providing for them in that. And there may be a parallel here to us in our current state. On the one hand, we are a holy priesthood. We've been sanctified in Christ. We have unhindered access to God through the ministry of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we first come to Christ with deformities, that is, spiritual deformities. And even as the holy priesthood, we still have deformities which, were it not for the sacrifice and intercession and ministry of Christ, those deformities would continue to bar our access into the Holy of Holies. But we are still sharers in the altar. We feed ourselves on Christ, who is the bread of life, who came down from heaven to give life to the world. As one commentator put it, like Aaron and his successors with their kinsmen, Christ takes responsibility for his fellow priests. In other words, just as, just as Aaron, the high priest, and these other priests who were not deformed, who could minister at the altar, they cared for their fellow priests and made sure that they were fed from the things of the altar. So also Christ is doing that for us. Christ ministers the bread of life to us, those of us who are priests but yet are deformed. And though we still have these deformities now, praise God, we will not always have them. Right? Because we are the bride of Christ, and our wedding day is drawing nearer. Our great bridegroom will soon present to himself the church in all her glory, and at that point she will have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27. That is where we are headed. Praise God for that. 
In the meantime, we're, we're kind of in the, in the already and the not yet. We're both regular priests with access to God, but yet we're still those priests who still have deformities. We have access to God now, but we don't have the kind of access that we will one day. One day when the dwelling of God is with man and he wipes away every tear from their eyes and there's no longer death or mourning or crying or pain because the first order of things have passed away. That's, that's where we're headed, but we're not, we're not there yet. And so in the meantime, when your deformities are only all too clear to you, let these last verses of Leviticus 21 be an encouragement to you that despite the deformities and despite our current limitations, Christ has not cast you off. Christ is still faithfully ministering to his deformed fellow priests. He's still feeding us the bread of life. He's still sanctifying us more. And one day, one day, my friends, those spiritual deformities will be completely obliterated, taken away. We will have full, unhindered access to God in the new heavens and the new earth. May Christ sustain us and strengthen us until that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and his kindness to us, loving us despite our deformities, even as his fellow priests. And we ask, Lord, uh, that we would be humble enough to, to recognize and acknowledge our deformities and that we would long for the day when all of these evils are completely taken away from us, when the evils of our heart and the evils uh, that assault our minds the sins into which we so easily stumble will be, will be no more. And we will be in your presence forevermore. We pray that you would stir us up, that we would long for that day and would realize what a wonderful day that will be. We pray that you'd strengthen us in the meantime, that we would uh, pursue as your holy priesthood those things which are good, that we would avoid those things which defile. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.